I was uh, watching a movie recently and it got me thinking, what are the most iconic quotes in movie history? What are some of the most well-known phrases which have been used in movies over the years? Of course, probably a couple from Star Wars would be near to the top of the list. May the force be with you. I am your father. Or maybe from Forrest Gump. My mama always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Forrest mustn't never have had a, a box of favourites because the, the chocolates in that box, the wrapper literally tells you what you're getting. I'll be back, the Terminator. I, I'm not doing the, the accent. <laughs> this wouldn't be good. Just keep swimming, finding Nemo. Inconceivable. That's a little bit niche. Some people get that, the Princess Bride. To infinity and beyond, Toy Story. This one's pretty obvious. Bond. James Bond. Then, of course, there's probably the greatest line from any movie ever made. They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. Doesn't quite have the same effect when you're not wearing a kilt and have paint on your face and, and you know, you're not yelling it. Now, another iconic movie line comes from The Sixth Sense. Uh, there's this nine-year-old boy named Cole Sear, played by Haley Joel Osment, and he says to his psychologist, played by Bruce Willis, I see dead people. Now, if you haven't seen it, I won't ruin the ending, even though you've had 23 years to see it. <laughs> but basically, this young boy claims to be able to see and to talk to dead people. Now, the reason I bring it up is because when Jesus looks at this church in the city of Sardis. He essentially says, I see a dead church. He says to them in verse 1, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, what does a dead church look like? How would you answer that question? What are the signs that a church is dead or dying? I think most of us would naturally say a dead church is an empty church. No one shows up, no one's involved, there's no life, there's no activity, it is dead. Or you might say a dead church is an old church. It's wooden pews and old hymns and an aging congregation. There's no change, no growth, no new people. I think this is how we would naturally answer the question, what is a dead church? But today, as we come to Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is going to challenge our thinking. Jesus is going to say that not all dead churches are empty churches or old churches. He's going to show us that it is entirely possible to look like a vibrant, healthy, thriving church on the outside, but to be dead on the inside. Now, if you haven't been around for a few weeks, we are in a sermon series at the moment called Dear Church, the seven letters of Revelation 2 to 3. We're looking at seven letters which Jesus sent to seven ancient churches, which have an enduring message for all churches. And today we come to the fifth letter, the letter to the church in the city of Sardis. 
Now, what was going on in Sardis? What had led them to become the church of the living dead? Well, Sardis was like the other churches located in modern-day Turkey. And without going into too much detail, Sardis was once a very famous city. It was a very wealthy city, and it was a very heavily fortified city. It was actually built on the top of this incredibly steep hill. Some of you have probably visited Sardis and seen the ruins on the top of that hill. And so it was almost like they thought they were impregnable. But this church, this city had become complacent and they paid the cost. See, there were two occasions where some enemy invaders, they climbed the mountain during the night and they found that there were no soldiers on the wall, no lookouts, no guards, and so they opened up the gates and they let the invading army into the city and the glory of Sardis had faded. They were complacent and they paid the cost. And now Jesus warns the church in Sardis that they are facing a similar predicament. They have a reputation of being alive, but they're dead. They've become complacent, and if they don't take action, Jesus says they will pay the cost. So he says there in verse three, he says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. In other words, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. I will come and I will close down your church for good. And so Jesus has a message for this church in Sardis. And it's a blunt message. It's a severe message. But he wants them to wake up before it's too late. And so we're going to explore Jesus' message under three headings. Jesus has three things to say to this dying church which help us to avoid the same fate. The first thing Jesus says, if you're taking notes, is this. It's don't rely on your reputation. Don't rely on your reputation. You know, there is a theory in business called the reputation gap. It's the gap between the reputation of a company and the reality of that company. But of course, this is true not just in business, this is true in our lives and in our society as well. For example, many of you are probably familiar with the actor and comedian Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby was greatly loved by many people for many years. Uh, through his role on The Cosby Show, he, was actually at, he had the reputation as being America's dad. But then, in 2014, sexual assault allegations came to light. There was a gap between reputation and reality. And Jesus says this is true for the church in Sardis as well. Look at how he begins his message to them. Verse 1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And so this church had a good reputation. They probably were a large church, had a full calendar, a healthy budget, an impressive website. Maybe their minister had written a best-selling book. They probably had a thriving youth ministry. Maybe they even hosted conferences. And unlike the other churches that we've looked at in this series, there's nothing here said about any false teaching or scandalous behavior in this church. They seemed to have it all together. They seemed to be healthy and thriving, or at least to those around them. But Jesus saw something different. He could see beneath the surface, and he simply says to them, you are dead. 
Now, it must have come as a shock to this church in Sardis. They were probably used to hearing how wonderful they were. And so what caused this breakdown, this gap between reputation and reality? Well, Jesus gives us the clue in verse 2. Look what he goes on to say. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Now, what is Jesus saying? What does he mean that their deeds are unfinished? The Greek word literally means unfulfilled. Their works have been done, but not in their fullness, not in the way that they should be done. Not in a genuine way, but in a half-hearted or a hypocritical way. In other words, they were doing things for Jesus, but not out of love for Jesus. They were doing it because it's what they'd always done, or it's what they were supposed to do, or it's what others expected them to do. They were going through the motions. They were keeping up appearances. Their worship and their service, it had grown to become external and empty, not real and genuine. In other words, the problem in the church in Sardis was nominal Christianity. The word nominal literally means in name only. Theirs was a Christianity in name, but not in heart. Now, let's be honest, this is still a problem today. I mean, it's worth asking ourselves, what about us? Have we drifted off? Have we fallen asleep? Are we going through the motions? Are we keeping up appearances? Is there a gap between our reputation and our reality? Now, I guess the question is, how do we know? What are some symptoms of this spiritual sickness? Well, Jesus actually shows us there in verse 4. He shows us a consequence of this kind of nominal Christianity. He says to the church in Sardis, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. And so when Jesus is talking about this group of people that have fallen asleep, he says that they have soiled their clothes. Now it's colorful imagery, isn't it? Sounds a bit like something my kids used to do. But it's actually talking about moral compromise and corruption. Because these believers inside us, they have become half-hearted about Jesus, they have become stained by the world. Because they have kind of just been floating in their faith, they have started to just fit in with everyone else. And this is what happens if we're not careful. This is where nominal, heartless faith leads us. I mean, it begins with complacency. We take Jesus for granted. We neglect spiritual rhythms. We, we, we go to church less regularly. We neglect private prayer. We don't have an appetite for God's word. And we know we should hunger for it, but we can't really be bothered. Or when we do hear it, or when we do read it, it doesn't transform us, or it doesn't taste good to us. We've kind of lost our appetite. And, and as a result, we become spiritually malnourished. We become desensitized to sin. We, we give ourselves over to it. We feel bad about it, to be sure, but, but, but not bad enough or hopeful enough to ask for help. And over time, what happens is we even become desensitized to Jesus. We start to put limits on our relationship with him. So I'll do this, but, but not that. That's too much. 
I'll, I'll give this, but, but not that much. You, you can have this, but the, the rest is mine. And we kind of slowly drift into a spiritual slumber. Now, we might still have a good reputation. We might still be serving in church or attending in church, and, and others might think really good of us. But Jesus sees behind the facade. He sees us as we really are, and he says to us with great love in his eyes, he says, wake up. Don't rely on your reputation. Your reputation before others isn't what really matters. What really matters is your reality with me. What really matters is your relationship with me. That's challenging stuff, isn't it? It's a strong word from Jesus. And maybe you're thinking, Adam, I can relate to what you've described. I can relate to what I've just described. Maybe you're thinking, I've lived it or I'm living it right now. But what do I do about it? What's the solution for a sleepy Christian? What's the remedy for a dead church? And this is what Jesus turns to next. He says to the church in Sardis, don't rely on your reputation and he goes on and he says to them, instead, remember what you've received. You know, it's so encouraging to me that, that to these sleepy Christians, to this dead church, Jesus doesn't say, do better, try harder, get busy, get to work. He simply says, remember. And he wants them to remember two things. He wants them to remember what they've received and heard. Look there at verse three. He says, remember, therefore, what you have received, not what you've done, not what you've earned, not how much you've given. Remember what you've received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. So, so what has the church in Sardis received and heard? Well, firstly, what have they heard? They've heard the gospel. They've heard the good news about God's grace in Jesus Christ. This is the message that brought them to life in the first place. This is always the message that brings all Christians and churches to life. Now, what is this gospel? Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're new to church and you're wondering, what exactly do Christians believe? Well, let me give you a summary from the Bible in Romans 5 verse 8. This is what the Bible says. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. How has God demonstrated his love? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news of Christianity in one sentence. That is the message of the gospel in one verse. And it shows us that the, the gospel is good news, bad news, great news. Heard this summary from a pastor named Tim Clemens, and I think it's a helpful framework. Firstly, the gospel is good news. It's good news because you have been made and loved by God. You're not just a clump of cells. You're not a random accident. You're not an overdeveloped primate. You have been created by God with value, dignity, and purpose. Good news. But the bad news is that you are what the Bible calls a sinner. I am a sinner. This is our reputation before God because we have rejected God. We have not loved God and honoured God as we should. We've rebelled against him. We've broken his law. We've rejected his rule. We've worshipped his creation rather than him, the creator. 
And this is what the Bible calls sin. This is why the Bible calls us sinners. But this is where the gospel becomes great news. And it's right there in the second half of that verse because while we were still sinners, rebels, running away from God, Christ died for us. God loves sinners and he sent his son to die for them. Jesus came from heaven to earth to die in our place for our sin on the cross. Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life, had the perfect reputation before God, willingly died in our place so that when we put our trust in him, we receive his reputation. We can be declared by God to be loved, forgiven, accepted by him. And this is the message of Christianity. This is the good news of the gospel. It's good news, bad news, great news. And this is the message that Jesus wants the church in Sardis to remember. Why? Because it would melt their heart again. It would be like a spiritual defibrillator. That's a hard word to say. Been practicing this week. Defibrillator. Now, now someone actually came up to me between the service because I kind of said, you know, it's like a spiritual defibrillator. I'm not saying it yet. Spiritual defib. It's going to shock you and wake you up. And they said, actually, what a defib does is that it interrupts an unhealthy rhythm in the heart. Now, you probably, or an unhealthy is the wrong word, an incorrect rhythm in the heart. You probably all knew this. I'm just really dumb and ignorant. But isn't that what Jesus is doing here with the church in Sardis? He wants them to remember the gospel, to interrupt their wrong thinking, wrong living, and to wake them up again, to bring them to life. And this is the message they'd heard. It's the message of the gospel. But notice there that Jesus also says, remember what you've heard and remember what you've received. Now, what had they received? What had been given to them? The answer is the life-giving gift of the Holy Spirit. The powerful presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, is the gift that we all receive when we place our faith in Jesus. In fact, this is why Jesus introduces himself the way that he does in verse 1. Notice what he said there. He said, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. Now, it's an unusual description, but Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. The number seven in the Bible symbolizes wholeness or completeness. And so Jesus is talking about the complete ministry of the Holy Spirit. And why does Jesus want them to remember this? To remember what they've received? Well, what else could a sleepy Christian or a dying church need but the life-giving power of God's Spirit? They need the Holy Spirit to wake them up, to re revive their dead hearts, to open their blind eyes, to bring them to life. They need to remember what they've received. It's a bit like a number of years ago when, when I was just about ready to give up. I'd just about had enough and I was about to lose it. I was putting together flat pack furniture. And there I was on a Saturday afternoon, surrounded by these pieces of timber and screws everywhere, slowly putting it all together with this Allen key. It's torturous, until about halfway through, I remembered what I'd received. I'd purchased a few months earlier a battery-operated power screwdriver. Going to make the process a whole lot faster and less painful. Needed to remember what I'd received. And it's the same for this church in Sardis. 
The task of kind of reviving their faith, reviving their church is too big for them. They can't work that up from the inside. They need God's spirit to bring them to life. Now the question is, what does this look like practically speaking? You know, it's easy to say we need God's Holy Spirit to bring us to life, but but what what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I think it begins by just asking God, God, would you fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit? God, would you soften my heart? Would you open my eyes? And this will lead to all all different kinds of things, but I want you to notice what Jesus says there in verse 6, what he says specifically how the Holy Spirit wakes us up. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Holy Spirit wakes us up and revives us by allowing us to hear what God is saying to us in the gospel. The the, the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit pushes that deep into our hearts so that it might fill us up, wake us up, and revive us. You know, there are moments in life, we, we can sit under, you can hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus again and again and again, but there are some times in life when the Holy Spirit impresses that on our hearts and wakes us up and we feel the love of God. And so let me ask you, do you hear what God is saying to you in Jesus Christ. Like me, you probably hear all different kinds of things during the week, on the TV, in the newspaper, on social media. But do you hear what God is saying to you? You belong to him in Christ. He loves you. He sent his son for you. So to wake this church up from its slumber, Jesus wants them to look back. He wants them to remember what they had received and what they had heard. But he doesn't just want them to look back. He also wants them to look ahead, to to look forward at what he will give to them. And this brings us to our third and final point. Jesus has said to this church in Sardis, don't rely on your reputation. He said, remember what you've received. And then he says, look ahead to your reward. See, as he comes to the end in verses four and five, Jesus makes two amazing promises to the faithful follower, to the the person who's holding on to Jesus. He promises to give two amazing gifts. The first is white clothes. Look there at verses four and five. He says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white white. Now, now these white clothes are a symbol of purity, like the the white dress that a bride wears on her wedding day, which is traditionally a symbol of purity and faithfulness. And this is what we will receive one day from Christ himself. We will walk with him totally cleansed of everything that has harmed us and degraded us. And this is hard for us to imagine because we are so weighed down by guilt and shame. We are so scarred by our sin and the sin of others. We're so used to life in in the muck and the mire of this world, it's hard for us to even imagine what purity feels like. But Jesus promises that if we hold on to him, if we're faithful to him, there is a day coming when our shame will fall off like scales and we'll be clothed in clean white clothes. I imagine it will feel like having a nice, long, hot shower 
and then getting into bed with clean sheets or something like that. Probably a whole lot better. Now, I guess the question is, how do we receive these white clothes? How do we know that we'll receive them? Well, the answer here in Revelation 3 is that it is for those who are worthy, Jesus says. He says, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Now, what does that mean exactly? Here's the way that Leon Morris, an Australian scholar, puts it. He says, it does not mean that they have merited it, earned it, but that they have done nothing to forfeit it. In other words, they haven't earned it by their good record. They've received it by not giving up. By even in moments of of pain and shame and guilt, they cling to Christ. They hold on to Christ. Dare I say it, a little bit like a barnacle holds on to a blue whale. If you haven't been around for the last few weeks, you have to go back and listen to the last few weeks' sermons. And you know, this idea is reinforced when we just turn to Revelation 7. There's this vision there of a multitude of people, many nations, tribes, and tongues gathered around the throne of God, and they're all wearing white robes. Now, how did they receive these white robes? Well, Revelation 7 verse 14 says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The only way to receive these white robes is to have your soiled robes cleansed by Christ. And it's the gift of God. You you don't try to cleanse yourself. You can't cleanse yourself. You're cleansed by Christ. Now, you might be thinking, Adam, you don't know how stained I am. You don't know how deep it goes. And all I know is that your sin is no match for Christ's blood. Do you really think that your sin is stronger than God's grace? And when you give yourself to him, you're washed whiter than snow. It's the first promise that he makes, the promise of white clothes. The second promise that Jesus makes is to write your name in the book of life. Look there at verse five in the second half. He says, I will never... Blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Jesus is saying here that God almost has like a register of those who belong to him. He calls it the book of life. And those who are trusting in Jesus, those who are clinging to Jesus, they have their name written in this book. And it will never be removed, Jesus says. He'll never blot it out. Your future is secure. And so the question is, is your name written in that book? On that final day when you stand before God, will your name be written on that list? The only list that truly matters. It reminds me a little bit actually of Schindler's List. I started with a movie, let me close with one. If you've read the book or if you've seen the movie, you'll be familiar with the story of Oscar Schindler. He used... Uh, He was a a German factory owner during World War II, and he used his position and his factory to save the lives of 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust. He would employ these Jewish people in his factory so that they would not be sent to a concentration camp. But later in the war, when his factory had to be moved, a list had to be drawn up to determine who would be able to go with Schindler to this new factory. And Schindler's accountant, Isaac Stern, he said, to have your name on this list 
was life itself. And this is even more true for the book of life. To have your name on this list is life itself. And so is your name in this book? And are you living in light of it or have you fallen asleep? If you've drifted off to sleep, today is the day to wake up, to remember what you've heard, to remember what you've received, to repent and return to Christ. His arms are open. There's no doubting that he can revive us and there's no doubting that it's worth it. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these honest, life-giving words. Thank you that they can wake us up. Lord, if we would be honest enough to say that we have drifted off to sleep, then today, by the message of your gospel, by the presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you wake us up? Would you help us to see your glory and your goodness and your grace in the Lord Jesus? Would you help us to to trust in him, to cling to him, to follow him, to not give up because we know what is waiting for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.